My guest today is Nick Bergson Shilcock, a lifelong unschooler and the CEO and co-founder of the Recurse Center. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us briefly what the Recurse Center is before we jump into hearing about your story? Absolutely. So we do three things. We run programming retreats, we operate a lifelong learning community, and we run an integrated recruiting agency. So that might sound weird, but I think those three things are all important and they fit together in key ways. So the first thing is we run these programming retreats that bring together people of all ages and backgrounds to work in a both highly collaborative and extremely self-directed environment on becoming dramatically better programmers. Some people come in and they're entirely self-taught and they've been programming for six months. Some people come in and they've been staff engineers at major tech companies and have been programming for 40 years. Uh, most people are somewhere in between, but everyone is united by the fact that they are all smart, friendly, intellectually curious people who enjoy programming and want to get dramatically better. That's the first thing we do. Then after people attend our retreats, they become part of a lifelong learning community and typically remain heavily involved for the years to come. And then the last thing we do is we run an integrated recruiting agency. Um, this is how we fund and operate the entire uh, experience. So we do not charge at all for our retreat or being a member of our alumni community. And the way we're able to do this is because we operate as recruiters. So we work with a limited set of tech companies to help them hire members of our community. So when anyone in our community is interested in considering a new programming job, either right after attending our retreat or four, five, 10 years down the line, we are there to work closely with them to understand what they're interested in uh, for the next step in their career and to match them with uh, hopefully good opportunities. And uh, if they uh, accept jobs at one of our partner companies that we recommend, that company pays us a hiring fee. And we use that to ensure that the retreat remains uh, free for everyone. Uh, there's a lot more in terms of how these three activities fit together uh, and make RC what it is. Uh, but it's probably already longer than you wanted, so I'll pause there. <laughs> no, no, that, that's great. And we'll be digging into the, the details in just a moment. So I, I stumbled onto the Recurse Center website years ago and was delighted to see uh, explicit shout outs to unschooling and John Holt and being self-directed. And it took me a while to, to connect the dots that you are the, the son of Peter Bergson, who's a, a recent guest on this podcast talking about Open Connections and Natural Creativity Center. And uh, so why don't we go back to your personal story of uh, being an unschooler and being self-directed and, and I'm especially interested in how you got into programming. Uh, absolutely. So I, uh, as you mentioned at the uh, outset, am a lifelong unschooler, meaning I never attended uh, school of any sort until I uh, eventually chose to go to college. Um, and so, my parents uh, really did, I think, follow unschooling uh, quite, uh, quite truthfully in the sense that they gave me a tremendous amount of autonomy and control over my own education and the freedom to develop my own interests and passions. Uh, so one of those things very early on for me was um, I was interested in playing video games uh, and that led to an interest eventually in making video games, uh, which led to an interest in programming, which happened sometime around the age of 12 and uh, eventually led into my, you know, now my, my career um, for the last decade plus. Can, can you tell us what games specifically and what coding languages you were toying around with around uh, age 10, 11, 12? Sure. Um, 
So the games, uh, the initial games were some video games. I guess it would have been the uh, kind of mid '90s games um, around that period. So Final Fantasy VII was a favorite. Resident Evil. Uh, a lot of PlayStation and computer games, um, point-and-click adventure games um, like Full Throttle uh, and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, a couple of other favorites. Um, so those were the ones I was playing around with. Um, as far as programming languages, there were a few, um, and I spent a lot of time dabbling early on uh, and just kind of exploring on my own. So uh, one seminal thing is that I um, got access to a couple of actually very old computers around this age, I think probably around maybe 11 or so. Um, one was an old computer that my family had actually purchased for my older sister uh, a decade earlier or so, um, which was a, uh, a Franklin, which is an Apple II clone. And uh, another was actually one that I uh, purchased, I think at a, a garage sale or got a hand-me-down hand or something, which was an, an Apple IIe. Um, and both of those computers were just tremendous fun to explore. They're really, uh, relatively speaking, compared to computers these days, simple systems. And they were my own, so I could have full autonomy over you know, opening them up and doing whatever I wanted with them. Um, and they both had uh, built into them basic interpreters. Uh, so basic as a, as a programming language that um, is, uh, is, is quite basic and is nice in the sense that you can just literally start typing in and, and seeing the output of, of uh, your programs immediately. Mm -hmm. um, so the, you know, the simplest programs are as simple as uh, 10 print uh, Hynek 20 go to 10, which will you know, print out Hynek uh, forever. Yeah, um, I, I spent and, a few summers messing around with uh, Oregon Trail and BASIC and mm -hmm. have really great memories from that time period. And, and BASIC was just so accessible and fun. And it really made me feel like I, I could learn coding if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and so uh, that was, uh, so BASIC was early on for me. And then there were actually a, a few other uh, variants of, of BASIC. There was a real BASIC, which was a way of writing native uh, Mac desktop applications that I explored a lot during that time. And I also started learning C um, because I had through somehow found out that like, oh, C is how people make real video games. Um, mm. And so I started uh, trying to learn some C around that time. Um, I also really enjoyed working with HyperCard, uh, which has a built-in scripting language called HyperTalk. Um, HyperCard is a really fascinating kind of uh, precursor to the, uh, to the web in many ways, has a lot of the ideas huh. that uh, the web eventually um, brought to actual fru uh, fruition. So what's the first um, program that you created you know, in, in its entirety? First, so I think the first you know, technical program that I created was probably something like that, you know, uh, 10 print, uh, you know, maybe what is your name and then 20 input name and then <laughs> uh, 30, you know, print name and 40, uh, you know, go to 30. Um, but then I branched into slightly more simple. Actually, that, that's actually not true. I, I, I do have a memory of the first in my mind game that I made was actually yeah. on a, uh, a Mac Plus. And it was not a game by any real definition, but it was, a, it was a game to the, I don't know, I think I was probably about five or six, um, was that I realized that in Mac Paint, you could draw something you know, like a helicopter or something, and then you could use the lasso, lasso select tool. Uh, and you know that's where you get the the ants marching around your selection, mm -hmm. and then you can drag with the mouse. And so in my mind, that was you know creating a thing on a computer because I could draw something and I could move it around, um, which obviously sounds 
so so ridiculously basic <laughs> right now, but but was you know is a is a powerful feeling and yeah, mind blowing for a later discoveries. Yeah, um, that led to a lot of other. I mean, I I made programs. I, I transitioned relatively quickly from finding um, video games and game development interesting to just the intellectual challenge of programming was uh, and the satisfaction of making a computer do whatever I wanted to. Um, much more interesting. So like I would then, you know, I built a network chat application so that I could have like send little messages from one computer on uh, my home network to another. Um, and I built a home network uh, to support that, uh, which, you know, meant running ethernet cables and uh, before that local talk uh, cabling throughout my, you know, my childhood home. Um, and so a lot of the programming I did was, you know, little scripts, fun things, you know, I think, um, I think I, uh, I I did a lot of kind of glue programming uh, as a as a young person, um, and uh, that was just because I was usually using programming in terms of uh, um, accomplishing something that was important or interesting to me, or I just thought would be fun, um, whether that was making an animation or being able to send a message from one computer to another. Um, and then it wasn't until you know later on when I was maybe. 16, 17, that I started doing uh, more sophisticated programming. Uh, and then, of course, uh, through college, I ended up studying computer engineering uh, and getting a, a bachelor's in that and then uh, entering the workforce. Um, so, and, and, and so that obviously led to much more and, programming. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to, I want to hear that part of the story too. I want to linger just a little bit longer on the childhood, childhood part of this. Uh, I think there's a lot of parents who feel concerned when their kids spend you know, hours and hours and hours in front of computer screens, like I'm sure you did. And so maybe I want to get you to philosophize a bit here, Nick. Um, do you feel like because you were doing this in the 90s when there were, you know, fewer distractions, there, there was no major World Wide Web to speak of, there was no YouTube algorithm. Do you feel like this was like a more innocent age in which, um, you know, someone like you spending a lot of time on the computer led necessarily to to these deeper um, activities, you know, what would people would probably label like real learning as opposed to just um, fooling around on games. And, and how do you see the current situation for kids who are kind of like you are, uh, or excuse me, like you were when you were mm -hmm. that age, uh, just really attracted to games um, and, and their parents are like secretly hoping that they get into serious programming, but really worried that it, they're just going to be uh, sucked into these worlds of gaming and never come out again. I, so certainly a lot has changed in the last, you know, 20 plus years uh, since I was doing this. Um, and I think the kind of pathway into programming today for somebody of a similar age is going to look very different. Um, but I don't think the fundamentals have changed. Uh, and that I think the things that my parents did right uh, and the things that worked well for me would still work uh, for young people today. What, what did I they do? Lay, lay it out for us. So I think the first thing is they trusted me. Um, they trusted me to be able to um, open up a computer on my own and you know see what was going on uh, and to use it to have um, a lot of just free time to explore and experiment to set my own goals. Um, I you know did have some minor conflicts of, uh, occasionally when my mother was worried about too much screen, screen time and wanting me to um, go outside and you know get away from the screen. Uh, 
And I think there was some value to her setting uh, some boundaries there. Uh, but I think fundamentally, the thing that they got right was they, um, they trusted me uh, mm-hmm. and gave me the opportunity to actually explore my interest and develop uh, my passions. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think um, these things sound so simple, and yet I think basically nobody does them. Uh, and so I, I think the things that my parents got right were just those simple things. They gave me access to resources and they, to the extent that they could, helped me get access to the ones that I didn't have. Um, and, you know, even though most of my parents are, you know, obviously uh, college educated, uh, reasonable people, I mean, my mother has unfortunately passed away, but um, I was fortunate enough to grow up with both of my parents. Uh, and I had certainly lots of um, financial resources relative to, you know, most of the world. Um, but they had, absolutely no connection or understanding to anything in the computer industry or technology. Neither of them knew anything about programming. Um, You know, my father to this day still struggles to use a computer uh, effectively. Um, And so it's not like they had any expertise. Um, And certainly one of the things that has changed dramatically now compared to then was, you know, I was growing up in suburban Philadelphia. I, I like I think I maybe sort of knew two programmers as like adults mm. in my life who I occasionally, and, and they were, you know, an aunt and uncle who both basically programmed from a, a different era and didn't have any connection, practically speaking, to the types of programming I was interested in. Um, and so the other resources I was able to get was, you know, when I could get time on the internet because, uh, you know, my parents agreed that I could pay the $3 an hour for dial-up access to get on AOL. Uh, I would ask on web forums and stuff for advice or um, AOL message boards. Um, But like at that time, you know, when you bought a computer, you didn't get a free compiler and development system. But today, you know, if you buy any sort of a Mac, you have all of the best development tools accessible, or you can install Linux and get all of the best development tools. Um, and I think the same thing is true for Windows, right? You can get almost all of the best development tools that anyone uses in professional programming. It's mm-hmm. most of them are free. Mm-hmm. Many of them are also open source. Um, and <laughs> contrast that to when I was younger and I wanted a C compiler. Um, that was the thing that I asked for for my birthday and, and you know, <laughs> waited eight months for it. So I think the access to resources like that and the access to knowledge and the ability to um, just meet programmers uh, and other people doing this work, it's so much easier now uh, than it was, you know, 20 or 25 years ago. But I think there are many more opportunities for that, even if the systems have become more complicated and now there's YouTube and all these other distractions. I don't know. I think the, the fundamental value of, of trusting young young people is as true as ever. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I still think that, you know, given a, uh, given, you know, I guess I'm going to find out what happens here because I have a, a almost two-year-old son. Um, and, you know, obviously I, I don't know what he will ultimately be interested in, uh, but I would love to give him opportunities to explore and learn about technical and computer systems in the same way that I did. And, you know, uh, what that looks like, I think, is probably not giving him an Apple IIe from, you know, uh, the early 80s. Uh, Learn it like I did, I'm son. Still figuring what it is. <laughs> uh, great. Uh, so talk a, a bit about your transition into to college and, and tell us what college you went to and what that experience was like and then how you transitioned into the work world from there. 
Sure. So um, I want to take, before diving directly into answering that question, I just want to take a very quick detour. Um, I would like to keep this uh, podcast very positive, but I think there is kind of an elephant in the room that I do need to address, which is an important part of my life growing up was that I attended Open Connections, the um, Homeschooling Resource Center that my parents founded in the 1970s and that my family ran for over 40 years. Um, And that was a really important part of my unschooling and homeschooling experience for um, almost my entire uh, childhood and and young adult, you know, youth up to and adolescence uh, up to uh, up to college. Um, Unfortunately, last year, uh, it was taken over by uh, people who, uh, well, I, my mother has always said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything (laughs) at all. So I'm not going to say anything. Um, but I will say that my entire family uh, chose to disavow open connections and literally decades of work and uh, to distance ourselves because we want to have absolutely nothing to do with the current executive director um, nor the current board of directors. Uh, and so I just want to make it clear because uh, my family name and, and personally have been so connected to open connections for, uh, for my entire life and, and for decades before that. Um, and that unfortunately now, uh, it is not a place that I would endorse or ever recommend to anyone. And you have a statement about that on your personal website. Yes. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. So, uh, with that unfortunate, uh, uh, bit out of the way, and, uh, I apologize. I generally like to, to stay very positive. Um, I transitioned into college, I think pretty seamlessly. Um, I began taking, and this is one of the ways that um, I think my parents did a good job in supporting my interests, is um, they helped me find ways to start taking college courses um, early at a local university uh, so that I could continue to advance my programming skills. You know, I didn't have access to other people who really knew a lot about programming, uh, but my mother helped me find a way to be able to take um, night classes at a local university. And so I started taking data structures and algorithms and other introductory computer science courses um, when I was about 17. Um, That process led to some other uh, college classes part-time just on things I was interested in. I was studying classical Latin at the time and also very interested in that um, and philosophy and a few others. Um, That helped me uh, then actually when I, so when I eventually went to college full-time and applied, I was very much interested in doing computer engineering um, and continuing to study computer science. Um, but I also had a lot of other interests I wanted to be able to explore broadly. And that led me to the choice to actually apply to what's called a 3-2 program. So I did three years at Franklin and Marshall College, um, during which I got uh, a BA in what turned out to be an independent major because I wanted to be able to design my own uh, kind of set of courses. And I discovered quickly that uh, college, like most things are kind of hackable systems and that mm-hmm. anything that three members of the faculty sign off on is can be considered a major. And so I found three members of the faculty that agreed that the course of study that I plotted for myself made enough sense and was kind of coherent. And so I made up my own major that allowed me to take the classes that I wanted. Um, and so that was my three years for the, my first undergraduate degree. And then I um, transferred to Columbia University uh, here in New York uh, for my final two years for a second undergraduate degree, this one in computer engineering, uh, BS. And uh, that one was a much more traditional engineering degree. Um, 
And I kind of knew that going in from when I was doing my college search, looking at engineering schools, knowing that I wanted to study engineering and realizing that uh, most engineering programs are extremely uh, restricted in terms of uh, restrictive in terms of how many electives you can take and, and kind of how much broad exploration you can do. And so uh, I really liked the, the 3-2 program for this reason, which is this allowed me to basically have a lot, uh, you know, a period where I could take a course on the citizenship or the philosophy of education um, and continue my Latin studies, uh, but also still uh, get to have time to um, uh, do a degree. Yeah, that, that's really the best of both worlds, like an intensive engineering experience and also a bit of the, the broader liberal arts experience. Exactly. Yeah. And that was, that was my goal. And I, I felt like I got that. And what happened after you finished the engineering degree when you left Columbia? Uh, did you go into the, the world of, of programming? Yeah. So uh, during my, um, after my first year at Columbia, I went to go look for uh, an internship and uh, I went to the, the career fair at, at the school for the engineering school. And I kind of had two constraints is I was not particularly interested in working in finance and I didn't want to work for a defense contractor. Those were my two constraints for internships. And so I went through the, you know, whatever 200 uh, companies coming to hire computer engineers uh, at Columbia. This was in you know, 2006 um, for summer internships. And there were like almost no uh, companies that like fit that criteria. And then I found this one little nonprofit uh, called the Open Planning Project where uh, you could write software for making streets more livable and uh, improving public transit and everything that you wrote could be open source. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And so I met them and that was great. And I got an internship there. And, uh, and then after college, I uh, accepted a full-time offer and I worked there for a couple of years. Um, and it was a really good experience. I enjoyed my time there. Um, I grew a lot as a programmer. Um, it was a good work environment and had uh, some some great colleagues, um, one of whom is is now my co-founder at my current company. Um, but I knew from a very early age, one of the other things that I discovered now going back to, you know, when I was 14, 15 and exploring uh, programming, one of the other things that that led me to was kind of like uh, the history of Silicon Valley. And um, in particular, I was, I was always fascinated by the founding history and myths of, of Apple um, being a, a longtime Mac user. And so that had kind of inspired in me the idea that I wanted to start my own company someday. And so from you know, the age of 14 or 15 on, I was, I was kind of set on the idea that I would eventually start my own company. Um, and so I had actually started my job with the expectation that I would work about two years and then quit and then start my own company. And so uh, two years to the day after uh, <laughs> starting full-time work at, at uh, uh, after college um, and my, uh, you know, my, my 401k had been fully vested, I, uh, I quit. <laughs> um, I, I gave my boss about, I think, six months notice or something. So okay. it wasn't really a surprise. Um, and I uh, and I started a company with uh, at that point just just one friend, uh, uh, my uh, second uh, former colleague and and, and good friend uh, later joined, and have been running that company, which is uh, the Recur Center, ever since. Um, but we spent the first uh, basically year of the company uh, exploring different ideas and kind of bouncing around different things before uh, the current kind of incarnation of our of our work uh, solidified. And, and, and during that year, was that when you went to Y Combinator? Yes. So um, we for, for people who don't know what that is, can you just uh, maybe get, give the one line summary of Y Combinator too? So Y Combinator is uh, a investment firm. They give people um, a small amount of money 
um, at the time that we went, it was about $20,000. Now I think it's about $150,000 um, in exchange for about usually seven uh, or eight percent of their company. Um, so they're venture capitalists, they're investing money in your company. Um, and then also provide access to a phenomenal network um, and advice and support for starting a company. Um, and for us, uh, my co-founder and I, who went through it in 2010, it was a fantastic experience and did exactly what we needed. We had absolutely no connection whatsoever to anything in the tech industry, to anything in Silicon Valley, to any sort of venture capital. Um, we actually applied to YC on a whim late. And the reason was because we had just given notice at our jobs and had decided to quit to build this company. Uh, and we didn't really know where to start. And we we're like, well, maybe we should write a business plan. And then we didn't really know how we'd write a business plan. And my co-founder said, well, you know, I actually remember looking at the Y Combinator application, like their admissions form. And it seemed like it had some pretty useful questions. And so we went to look at it and we started answering the questions, you know, for ourselves, for our own, uh, you know, to clarify our own thinking and goals. And we said, oh, this is actually like pretty fun and interesting. Like we should actually submit this. Uh, and so we submitted it and, and we're surprised to get an interview and then flew out and did an interview in, in Mountain View, California, uh, got accepted and then uh, ended up uh, moving to Mountain View for five months. Oh my um, gosh, don't they have a notoriously low acceptance rate? Um, I think they do have a very low acceptance rate. Um, I, uh, I have a, a long set of, maybe, uh, I, I have a whole rant on acceptance rates that I'd be happy to go into if you would like. Um, <laughs> we'll but, circle um, back to that when we talk about we'll uh, RC's acceptance rate. <laughs> Um, but what they provided were a few things. Um, and I think the things that in, in different ways, um, the recurse center RC also provides people in, in a very different context and that I think good supportive communities and self-directed environments also provide people. Um, and so the things they provided us were one, um, a network, you know, access to a really great and motivated set of peers. Uh, and people with different experiences and areas of expertise. Um, and by bringing us into that network that has given us a, a huge number of opportunities we wouldn't have had. Um, they do very little handholding, um, but they do help you figure out some general best practices. And we went from being kind of totally clueless to understanding how to you know, incorporate a company in Delaware and uh, set up our general corporate structure and make sure all of that is uh, kind of uh, uh, established correctly and, you know, giving you access to lawyers and things like that. Um, they also give a lot of other good advice, but I think like the, the thing that they really give, and it's, it's a really funny thing to think about giving someone because it's, you can't really do it, but somehow people do it is, um, they give you the sense that you can do it. Um, they give you their trust and support and belief that you're mm -hmm. capable of doing something impressive and hard. Um, and I think that that ends up helping a lot of people actually do those things, uh, even if they previously didn't believe that they could. Are you suggesting um, that that Y Combinator was like a, a nurturing, unschooling family that, that you were brought I think into? In many ways, yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, obviously they don't they don't describe themselves in terms of unschooling, but I think if you look at the history of a lot of how they've evolved and what they recognize as their own value, um, I think the ideas that they um, clearly actually value are, are I think, pretty, um, mm. pretty well aligned. 
Um, I share Paul Graham's essays very frequently because just the, the themes of, of self-direction are so evident in so much of what he writes. He's, he's the founder of Y Combinator. Uh, yeah, and, and then back to another, you know, uh, I guess, connection there. The, the reason that we knew that Y Combinator was a thing was because at some point, uh, I don't know when, um, in the unschooling circles I, I ran, people were passing around um, PG, uh, Paul Graham's essay, uh, Why Nerds Are Unpopular, which is basically a oh, you know, classic of, of, uh, of high school. Um, and I think also similarly, you know, I think uh, PG definitely does not have the uh, unschooling mindset totally. And he's still, I think, um, pretty connected to, to some traditional education. But I think his critiques of school are very much in line with unschooling. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. So Y Combinator, um, great, great experience. And it launched uh, you and your your two co-founders, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, so my two co-founders are David Albert and Sonali Sridhar. Uh, Sonali is the one that I, I mentioned earlier, who uh, I met actually at that that first internship and then later job. And uh, so we worked together uh, at Open Plans before uh, later starting the company together. And you started as a recruiting company, correct? Yeah. So our very first idea and the, the kind of the insight that we had um, was wow, it's really hard to hire good programmers. Uh, and we got this insight, which doesn't sound like a great insight, but it was an insight to us. Um, we got this insight because we had been working at, um, we thought pretty good places to work. Uh, we liked our jobs as programmers and had just come out of the, you know, the great recession and the financial crisis. And throughout the entire period of time, our companies had struggled to hire good programmers. And so we started with the hypothesis, well, this is kind of a, a matching problem. The initial thing we wanted to do was to build OkCupid for jobs, um, which was to basically do algorithmic matching of people and their preferences with roles and their kind of preferences or requirements to try to make good matches using a, an algorithm similar to what OkCupid had done for dating. Um, and so that was our initial idea that we, 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 we uh, tried to build for the company. We very quickly ran into problems with that we pivoted a couple of times. The final kind of pivot before we got to RC was actually uh, based off of a piece of advice that, that um, Paul Graham gave us, which was, uh, you know, we had been trying to build software to make hiring work better. Uh, and he said, well, you know, you don't really know what to build yet. Why don't you become, you know, as engineers, become recruiters yourselves and try to do the process manually, understand how the market actually works, what are the real problems. And then that'll give you insight into what software you could write or how you could automate yourselves out of that, uh, out of that thing. And, uh, and then eventually that could become your company. And, um, and so we took that advice and we basically became recruiters uh, with an eye towards trying to understand, well, what's not working here and how could we, we basically automate ourselves out of the picture. Uh, fast forward, you know, six or eight months or so of doing that. And the primary thing that we had learned from that process was that um, we didn't think it was actually about a, a matching problem fundamentally, or at least that that wasn't the biggest challenge with recruiting. The biggest challenge was finding enough really great programmers, both in finding them in the first place or even helping create them that there just weren't maybe enough in the world. And that was really where the big opportunity was. Mm. Around that same time, we had been um, talking about how we wanted to start a new type of university 
Um, after we had kind of built the software company and sold it and become phenomenally wealthy, we wanted to be able to kind of endow or create a new type of university that would provide the type of programming education and, and community that we had wanted for ourselves. Um, you know, Columbia has a very traditional kind of computer science and computer engineering program. Um, I felt like I got a lot out of my experience going to college. I'm not anti-college at all. Um, there were a lot of benefits to it. Um, however, I don't think that college really helped me become a better programmer. Um, I think the ways that I've become a better programmer is by, you know, writing actual software through my internship and then later job, uh, through building things that I thought were useful um, for myself and not really through, you know, academic computer science courses. Um, and so we'd been bouncing around ideas for what that would look like. And then it dawned on us at some point and kind of, um, I think probably spring or so of 2011, that we could connect these two ideas, that if we could build a better programming education and community, uh, that would also be helping to solve the biggest challenge we had seen in recruiting, which was they just weren't enough great programmers. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to run an experiment in the summer of 2011. Um, my co-founder Sonali had done her graduate degree at NYU, and so she got them to donate uh, a free, basically, classroom for us for the summer that they weren't using. Um, and we had met uh, hundreds of programmers as while doing the, the work of basically uh, being recruiters ourselves over the last six or so months. And so we reached out to a handful of folks that we thought might be well aligned and interested in this. And we said, um, hey, would you be interested in coming, hang out at this space in NYU for five weeks this summer? We're all gonna work on open source software. We're all going to help each other become better programmers work on our own projects and what we're interested in um, and uh, you know, have this kind of very collaborative but also really self-directed environment. And we're also running this uh, recruiting agency. So if at the end you're interested in considering you know, a new job or something, we can, we can work with you uh, there. Um, and so we did that for, for um, our, our goal was to have at least, I think, five people for five weeks. That was a kind of our, like, that was the minimal thing that we mm -hmm. thought we could do. Um, and, uh, and actually, uh, this was almost 10 years ago to the day. It was 10 years ago, um, two days ago was the first day of that first batch. Um, and like 72 hours before we were supposed to start, three of the uh, nine people we had had signed up uh, canceled and dropped out and we we're like oh my gosh is anyone gonna show up on monday morning uh but thankfully six people uh did actually show up um and at the end of the five weeks we felt like we uh, had personally grown a lot and gotten a lot from the experience and the six people that we had invited to participate alongside us had also gotten a lot out of the experience and it was clear to us that it was the first thing that we built that people really loved mm. um and uh, that we really cared about and was kind of a fit for what we wanted to be doing with our lives. Um, and uh, so even though that wasn't a piece of software, we decided this is the thing we should shift our focus to. Did you conceive of this as a sort of form of the Open Connections Self-Directed Learning Center taking place in a, in a, a smaller room with adults who have all come together with uh, pre-existing interest in programming? Did, did it feel like you were recreating Open Connections in any way? Um, well. Yes and no. I felt like we were creating, certainly, you know, what we built was a direct reflection of all of our life experiences. And I was up until this point a lifelong unschooler, identify as unschooling. To me, the basics, the basic philosophy of unschooling 
makes sense and I vehemently disagree with basically every, every underlying assumption of school. And so in order to build something that's like, a, you know, an educational environment, it would be, it's, it's just inconceivable to me that I would then build something that, uh, that doesn't reflect those values. So in that way, very much so. Um, uh, I don't think we were thinking in the explicit terms of like, oh, we are um, recreating OC or, or any other, you know, uh, pre-existing uh, institution. It was, we are taking the things that we believe and think are right and it will be effective and work uh, and applying them to this situation of how do we build this kind of better type of, of programming education and community. And, and at this moment, this is just before the, the coding boot camp era really begins, right? Yes. Um, and so that, that was another funny historical accident. Um, we couldn't come up with a name. Couldn't come up with a name. We couldn't come up with a name. We decided to choose a placeholder name, which was Hacker School. Uh, we all agreed it was a placeholder uh, because it wasn't really a good name because the first thing that we said on our website is like Hacker School is not a school. And then explained all the ways that like it's not a school because we don't have teachers or curriculum or grades or, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that name then really stuck because it's a catchy name and uh, it sounds nice and we got the dot com and all of that. But also the, the boot camp phenomenon took off, you know, six, 12 months after we started this and became such a um, such a phenomenon that we were for years battling the misconception that what we were doing was running a boot camp. Um, Which has more traditional teacher roles, teacher and student roles, right? Yes, I would say boot camps embody the basic assumptions of education uh, and the basic school. model of, of school uh, and formal education. And so what I would say those are is, is I like to describe it as the, you know, the vessel um, filling model of education where education is primarily about figuring out um, the right that, that there one that there is some right set of facts or skills or, or things that, that everyone needs to know or large swaths of people need to know and that the challenge of education is figuring out the correct order and uh, method in order to kind of pour those into people's heads um, versus the you know unschooling John Holt approach where you know education is about what is happening inside of somebody's own head and that it is an active and not a process, uh, a passive process. Um, and that it's, you know, not the product of teaching, but the product of the activity of the learner. Mm. Um, and so I think most boot camps reflect the very traditional views of education. You know, you need to learn X, Y, and Z in order to become a, co a competent web developer. You can do it in, in 12 weeks. Everyone's gonna learn at the same rate. Uh, we're going to assess this via some sort of, uh, you know, grades or tests or what have you. Um, the way to improve this is by improving the curriculum, better teaching uh, and instruction, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, I, I, and I, to give them some credit, I do think that there is a, a big thing that boot camps and MOOCs and basically everything else in that, that world does have, have as an advantage over um, compulsory schooling is the fact that uh, they are at least uh, nominally uh, opt-in, right? They're non-coercive. People are choosing to go because they want to be there. And I do think that that sets them up for considerably more success than mm -hmm. the traditional school system, uh, where uh, because of that kind of original sin of, uh, of compulsory education, um, 
it makes almost everything downstream of it uh, incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you had success with this first five-week retreat with nine people, and then you decided that this was uh, enough proof that you should you should do this as as the company. Yeah, uh, more or less. So we decided, okay, well, let's extend it to make it three months and try to have a slightly larger group. So we had, I don't know, 12 or 14 people come for three months, uh, starting that following September. Um, And we've been obviously made a lot of changes over the last decade, but um, we have been uh, more or less running it as such since then. Um, And that gets back to the three activities that I laid out at the beginning in terms of what we do. We run these retreats. People come for now either one, six or 12 weeks to work in a really uh, collaborative and self-directed environment on becoming better programmers. They become part of a lifelong uh, community. Now we have uh, just about 2000 alums. Uh, We've had people come from, you know, 50 different countries around the world. Um, before COVID, uh, it was uh, about 70% of people were coming from outside of New York, uh, with about a third coming from outside of the country. Um, so people really from all over, uh, 150 plus cities around the world. Um, since, uh, since March of 2020, we've been operating entirely online. And so we've been building uh, a remote version of our retreats, which I'm happy to, to dive into the details of if you're interested. Um, we do plan to uh, later reopen our physical space in Brooklyn to allow in-person participation as well. And it is our hope that we will be able to build a successful hybrid model where people will have the option of either participating remotely from anywhere in the world or uh, coming and participating in person uh, at our space in Brooklyn once mm-hmm. it is uh, safe and responsible to, to reopen. Well, there's a lot for us to talk about at this moment. I want to start with um, some the, the basic parameters of who can come and who does come to RC. So, tell me, uh, do you accept people of of all ages? Do, you know, if you had a 15 year old who was super into programming and was ready for this kind of experience, could you accept a 15 year old? Absolutely, and we have uh, accepted several. Uh, I think our youngest ever recursor, and we've had two 13-year-olds come so far, uh, and then several other 15, 17 other uh, young young teenagers. And Um, was that in the the New York City in-person residential situation, or was that online? Uh, Both. Uh, We've had a 13-year-old come uh, uh, in-person and also online. Um, The the young people who have have come uh, in-person, you know, usually where they would, uh, you know, move with a, a parent or something uh, for the, you know, part of the summer or something like that. You know, one person coming in from Connecticut and another from Texas, uh, you know, who came and, and moved with a, a parent or lived with a family member uh, during their batch. That, that's incredible. I, I, I cannot imagine another organization that would accept a, a legal minor into a, a kind of program, like an in-person program like this. Um, uh, they, you know, what's astounding is that um, we have, we, we've put a lot of effort into our admissions process and thinking deeply about what are the actual criteria that, and requirements we have for people to be able to succeed at RC. And when people meet that bar, I think all of the other things really don't matter, including age. Um, and we've had you know, 13 and 14 year olds come and form, I think incredibly productive and valuable partnerships and collaborations with 40 and 50 year olds. Uh, and, uh, and it's not a, oh, I'm going to sit down and teach this person or whatever. Right. You know, we, there were, you know, we had a, um, a high schooler come, so a little bit older, um, they 
they had um, chosen not to go to college. Uh, so I think they were maybe 17 at the time that they came. Uh, who, who did, you know, basically novel research with, uh, with seasoned career, uh, you know, professionals, people who had been working for you know, a decade or two uh, in the workforce and, uh, you know, are genuine collaborators. And I noticed you take people of all ability levels, like you just mentioned, uh, seasoned veterans uh, might be coming to RC along with relatively um, yeah, inexperienced people. I, I, I want to read something I found on your website, and I encourage everyone to just go browse the Recurse Center website because the writing there is so crisp and clean and, and well-defined. Like anyone who wants to start an organization and be very clear about what the organi organization does and who should come to it, I just think this is a model of clear communication. Um, but here's what really stood out to me. The first and most important thing, you should be here because you want to be here, not because someone else wants you to be here. It doesn't matter if that someone else is your parent, boss, or the president. Life's too short to be here for any other reason. You should be here primarily because you want to become a better programmer and spend the majority of your time here programming and doing things directly related to programming. I, I love that. Just right there, uh, you're telling people, if you're not serious, don't come. That's the most important thing. You're not attaching this to age or pre-existing abilities. It's just drive. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I think that gets into, you know, um, actually the, the, the way I mentioned about our admissions rate and my thoughts on that, um, which is, you know, this is why I think a low admissions rate doesn't make any sense. So I will start by saying we don't we make a point of not sharing admissions rate. We used to in the past, but we think for various reasons it is a mistake too. Though generally speaking, I think people would consider that we have a relatively low admissions rate. Um, the reason we don't share it is because if you think about an admissions rate and you say, okay, we want it to be low, how do we make it lower? What does that incentivize? Well, there are two ways to make your admissions rate go down. The first is to encourage unqualified people to apply and then reject them. Uh, and that doesn't make any sense to me because our admissions rate is basically measuring how much time we spend on uh, interviewing and assessing applicants who we determine to be poor fits, which is just a measure of inefficiency and, and waste in our organization. Mm -hmm. So there's no value to us or other people to encourage people who we're not going to admit to apply. The other way to get a lower admissions rate is to get more qualified people to apply and then reject them, which also makes no sense. Um, because, well, why would you reject qualified people? Um, RC's model is fundamentally, we, we say community-driven, meaning peer-to-peer, -peer, right? The value of RC is mostly a function of the other people at RC. And the larger and more diverse uh, and strong the set of people we can bring together is, the better the experience is for everyone. And so we never want to be rejecting qualified people. Um, and so that's why we write things like that on our website, where we're not trying to convince people not to apply for bad reasons. We want people to apply if they really want to be here and it aligns well with their goals and their life circumstances and what they want. Um, and if it doesn't, that's fine, but it doesn't help anyone for them to apply and us to reject them um, or for us to accept them and then for them to realize, you know, oh wait, this isn't what I want to be doing with my time. And for anyone who's listening, who's thinking maybe, they should apply or someone they know should apply. What is the application process like? What are the steps? So we have a three-step process. The first step is you submit a short written application. Uh, this includes 
uh, a very simple uh, kind of a smoke test for whether or not you can write uh, a short program, um, a link to a slightly more substantial program that you've written on your own from scratch, and then a couple of short essay questions. Um, we then review those applications. The ones that we think are promising, we invite to a first round interview. This is a primarily conversational interview uh, where it's usually about 20 or 25 minutes long. We discuss uh, people's um, goals for coming to RC, uh, what they hope to get out of the experience, um, experience uh, operating in self-directed environments. Um, I can actually get more into kind of what we're trying to assess in just a second, but assuming that um, that conversational interview uh, goes well, we admit them to our third and final part of our admissions process, which is a pair programming interview. Um, our goal with this is to make it as much like uh, actually uh, programming with somebody else as possible. So uh, the applicant chooses what they want to work on. We have some suggested uh, uh, tasks that people can do where they're basically uh, simple kind of programming projects that people can work on. They do a part of it ahead of time before the interview. And then during the interview, they work on extending it in some way or improving it in some way um, uh, alongside the interviewer. And if after that, we think uh, they've, they've, uh, we've gotten positive signals on all of our admissions criteria, then we uh, uh, admit them to RC. So our admissions criteria are we look for, uh, look for people who are smart, friendly, intellectually curious, self-directed, enjoy programming, and want to get dramatically better. And so every part of our admissions process is designed around trying to get either a positive or negative signal on all of the criteria I just listed out. Um, and if we are able to get positive signals on all of those things, then we admit people. How do you stay fresh on programming? Like, how do you keep your love for your personal love for programming alive now that you've been in this more administrative role for a full decade now, Nick? So, uh, you know, that uh, there's an ebb and flow there. And over different periods of time, I have spent more or less time programming. Um, there was a period of time where I, so I, I do sometimes have personal uh, side projects. So for a couple of years, I was working on a side project of building my own personal finance manager, uh, which was like a, a problem that I had for myself that I wanted, didn't have any tools that uh, adequately solved. Um, but then a few years ago, I built a good enough version of that that it, you know, I now manage all my personal finances through it. And so uh, no longer made sense for me to work on. Um, my work at RC has similarly uh, sometimes involved substantial amounts of programming. Uh, over the years, it has involved increasingly less programming. Um, so I spend less time programming now than I used to, um, though it's still, I would say, is maybe 10 to 15% of my time. I end up either programming or doing programming adjacent tasks like you know data analysis or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that's just kind of a natural thing. Of, uh, you have different interests. So like, for instance, um, uh, and then obviously other life factors are, uh, you know, come into play. I, I had a, a child uh, almost exactly two years ago. So my uh, free time outside of work uh, obviously went, went down considerably after that. Um, but also for the last several years, or about, about three years, I developed an interest in learning to speak Mandarin. And so kind of my free intellectual and creative cycles outside of work have almost entirely gone towards that. Um, rather than programming. And that's just to you know, help my interests have evolved over the years. I love that you post your favorite Mandarin learning resources on your website too. Much appreciated. 
Uh, something that stands out to me when I read about RC uh, is the, the development of your social rules. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about those and, and how they came about. And then maybe that will seg naturally into RC's explicit focus on um, promoting underrepresented groups um, in the programming community. Absolutely. So uh, the first social rule basically came about almost accidentally. Um, and it predates RC. So in that year, uh, before we started the first batch of RC, uh, you know, my, my co-founders and I were working together. And in particular, my co-founder Dave and I had this, um, this problem of, of how we work together. Uh, well, one, we just, I, I think that to be honest, you know, I said that we spent a year trying to figure out what we were trying to build and you know, trying different ideas. I think one of the most valuable things we got out of the first actual year of, of our business was like learning how to productively uh, work well together. Um, and part of that was actually a thing that he identified is he had read this blog post um, uh, about the idea of a well actually uh, as a phenomenon that is particularly prominent in, in programming circles where people are used to being really precise, uh, usually in, in, in ways that actually don't matter or applying that precision in cases where it's not really important. And so a well actually is when you correct somebody about something that they're saying that's maybe a little bit wrong uh, or not precisely true or correct, but like irrelevant to the actual conversation or point that they're, they're trying to have or, or make. Um, and so, uh, you know, if, if uh, um that that was immediately transformative to to our working relationship that um he brought up he, he basically sent this blog post we read it and we're like ah we do this all the time to each other and it causes us to like it just causes needless like friction and it's yeah. annoying and then that like builds up you know <laughs> frustration yeah and is this about like it you know being nice but also about not being like a like intellectual one-upmanship saying like, is that really yeah. what well actuallys come down to? I think the uh, well actuallys at their root are usually about one person trying to show their superiority or yeah. intelligence yeah. Uh, or knowledge to somebody else, right? And, and that's the actual motivation, right? They're not really truth seeking or trying to move the conversation forward. They're trying to bring attention to, look, I know this thing, or look, you don't know this thing. Um, and obviously that's destructive to a creative endeavor like starting a business. And it's also extremely destructive to an educational environment. Um, and so we decided to implement this rule uh, and say, okay, no well actually is if we you know, catch ourselves or each other doing this, we can just point out, hey, that's a well actually. And that can then immediately, it's kind of like a, a quick release valve, right? It, it can relieve that tension. You really acknowledge that you're doing it, you apologize and you move on. You don't get stuck in that kind of, uh, pointless, uh, you know, debate or, or disagreement or what have you. And um, this just made us work better together. And so just like when I was saying before, it was just obvious when we were starting RC that it, of course it would embody the, the values of unschooling to not have it, does, just doesn't make any sense. Um, it was similarly very obvious to us. It was like, oh, well, we should bring this with us, right? Like, like Noel actually has works really well for us. Like we, we're gonna keep doing it with each other. We should explain it to the rest of the people we're invite, uh, inviting to participate in RC. And this should be, you know, a thing that everyone uh, kind of buys into and is part of the experience. Um, and so that was the first social rule. And that was there, you know, day one of the first batch. And we found it to be valuable and helped uh, build a, a more um, uh, 
supportive and, and productive uh, learning environment. And over the next three batches, we basically observed other behavior that we found to be similarly destructive to a good educational environment. And we were able to name and identify that behavior um, and create social rules to help combat it. Um, and so the idea with social rules are they are a lightweight framework that people can, um, that people opt into ahead of time. So there's already the context and you, you know about it. Um, and that they're meant to identify things that are, are relatively small things that people do regularly, uh, frequently not even like uh, consciously, um, but that create a, a, a worse uh, social and educational environment. So our other three social rules are, um, the second is no feigned surprise. Uh, this means acting surprised when somebody says they don't know something, um, or even just, even if you are genuinely surprised and being surprised when somebody doesn't know something. Um, and uh, you know, that, particularly in an educational environment, uh, is really uh, pernicious and destructive. Because if uh, you, know, you had said, who's Paul Graham? And I, and I said, oh my God, I can't believe you don't even know who you know, Paul Graham is. Mm -hmm. you know, he's the only one of the most prominent investors. Well, right? Like, what is the educational value of that? Right? You know, Imagine I, this happens maybe... with homeschoolers too. When a homeschooler's like, I don't know what the Treaty of Versailles is. And someone says, <laughs> you don't know what the Treaty of Versailles is? <laughs> Absolutely right, and and you know that is uh, only serving for that one person to maybe try to make themselves feel better about the fact that they know or something. But what it does is is obviously it makes the in the in the moment the um, uh, the other person usually feel feel badly. Uh, but but the really destructive thing, right, is that it it establishes a culture where admitting that you don't know something is a negative thing mm. rather than the first and necessary step to actually learning the thing, right? Mm. Where in an educational uh, context, it, you know, it's not like it's, oh, it's great to not know things. Like that's not, the, you know, like that, that's a misinterpretation of the, of the idea. It's that if you're going to actually learn and understand something, you have to first be able to acknowledge to yourself that you don't know and you don't understand the thing. And you have to be able to acknowledge that to yourself and to other people and having an environment where that is easy to do accelerates people's growth. Um, so that's the, uh, the second uh, social rule. Uh, the third is no backseat driving. Uh, this means that people shouldn't kind of lob advice, advice across the, the room or, or kind of butt into conversations um, for a few reasons. But one is that, you know, that's, that's destructive and, and disruptive in, in, in multiple ways. Um, because if you don't have the appropriate context or uh, not, uh, understanding of the, what's going on, that that can be misplay, uh, misplaced guidance. Um, it's just kind of annoying sometimes. Um, and also a lot of times, you know, even if you have the quote unquote, the right answer or know what, you know, the person is trying to work towards, uh, frequently the educational value is in that person being able to actually discover or work towards it on their own, or maybe that's what their goal is. Um, and so uh, that's the third, no backseat driving. And then the fourth social rule is no subtle isms. Um, which is subtle forms of sexism, racism, homophobia, and other forms of, uh, of stereotyping and oppression. Um, and uh, the idea behind that is, of course, uh, they're kind of similar to, I think, in, in other contexts, people talk about uh, microaggressions, if you're familiar with that term. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, subtleisms are things that are baked into our society and culture in ways that we don't even recognize, uh, but that when we um, perpetuate them, we, uh, we make it harder for other people to feel 
like they belong and to be in a context and in a situation where they, they can truly focus on their own learning and growth. And our goal with RC is to build a social environment where everyone there can focus as much of their mental energy as possible on becoming better programmers and not on uh, do I belong here? Does this person think less of me because of some you know, superficial characteristic of me? Or are they questioning my knowledge because of X, Y, Z? Um, you know, all of those things go to distract people and from their core goal of actually becoming better programmers. Mm -hmm. And so um, we found that these four social rules uh, kind of have a cumulative effect of helping to establish the type of learning environment that we think uh, really helps uh, people grow. Um, and I think to kind of step back on the kind of the, the underlying assumptions behind these things, you know, I mentioned, uh, I don't know, a, a day ago or something uh, in this conversation that uh, I, um, I disagree with all of uh, the kind of fundamental assumptions of school. Uh, and so part of what I meant by that is, you know, school um, and traditional education starts with the assumption that like the things that really matter for supporting people's growth is like, you know, getting the right curriculum or figuring out the right way to, you know, to teach things. Um, and I think that certainly having good resources uh, for learning, you know, good books or um, other resources like that, very valuable. But in the world that we currently live in, certainly, and probably even before then, where you could find more educational, more high quality educational resources for free online than you could ever possibly go through in 10 lifetimes. Um, that's not really the bottleneck to most people's growth. The bottleneck to most people's growth is having access to uh, a supportive community and peers and a high quality network, is um, being in uh, destructive uh, social and educational environments where you know, asking questions or feeling comfortable um, you know, exposing your own ignorance as a first step towards, towards remedying that, where, where that's not possible. And so what we have tried to do with RC is to focus on those things, right? Like how, you know, we think a much bigger obstacle to people's growth right now is not like they can't get a good textbook. It's that, you know, it's fear. It's, you know, fear of looking stupid. Um, that's a much bigger obstacle for most people or much bigger impediment to people's growth um, hmm. than I think the things that, that school spends its time focusing on. When RC was hacker school, I believe you guys got a little bit of fame for being becoming one of the first such organizations to give out grants uh, explicitly to to female programmers. Is that correct? That's correct. So in April of 2012, we uh, announced our uh, and launched our initial uh, grants program, uh, which we've continued uh, to this date. Um, so RC is free for everyone to attend, um, but uh, it's a full-time commitment. Being able to, you know, quit your job and spend three months focused on becoming a dramatically better programmer is expensive, particularly if, if you also have to live in New York at the time. Um, and so the idea behind our need-based grants were to um, give people stipends basically for living expenses during their time at RC and to target those specifically to people from traditionally underrepresented groups in programming. Um, and I think this gets back to, you know, again, what I said at the beginning in terms of the three activities that we do and how they are um, aligned and mutually support each other, you know, because the actual educational value of RC is a reflection of the strength of the network and the community, um, 
by and, and the diversity of that community, right? By having people with different perspectives and backgrounds and skill levels and interests um, and past experiences, when we can bring together a larger and more diverse group of people, we ex improve the experience of RC for everyone. Um, and so in addition to, I think the very good um, reasons for you know, inclusion and equity and justice in terms of in general supporting people from traditionally you know, underrepresented groups uh, or who have had you know, other systematic disadvantages in life, um, doing this actually improves the core experience of RC and the core product. And I think that is one of the reasons why we've been able to actually uh, kind of live by our values and have our actions actually reflect, um, you know, our, our, our words and actions actually line up with each other um, is because our organization's incentives are well aligned, uh, well aligned that um, we want to make RC a more uh, diverse and inclusive place, not just because we believe that it is a good thing to do, but because it improves the core of what RC is. Great. Uh, so let's let's wrap up by talking about the third element of recourse center, which is the recruiting part. And this is how uh, you pay the bills. This is how the lights stay on. This is, uh, I assume how, how you uh, can afford to live in New York city, Nick. Uh, yes. So, so tell us, and I'd love to hear as many details as possible. Um, how does the organization get paid? So we get paid because we have recruiting contracts with, uh, a limited set of tech companies that range from startups that have just a handful of people to large public tech companies uh, with you know thousands and thousands of employees and everything in between. We also work with a small number of um, financial firms and hedge funds, things like that. Um, and the contracts are more or less uh, stipulate that if we introduce one of these companies to a member of our community for a specific role that they are hiring for, and that person gets hired and stays at least three months at the company, the company pays us 25% uh, of that person's base salary. Uh, so to be clear for anyone who's not familiar with how contingent recruiting fees work, um, this is not something that the person is paying. It doesn't come out of their salary. It's an additional fee on top of their salary that the company pays directly to us. Okay. Um, and and intro level salaries for these kinds of positions, can you give me a ballpark of what they you say range? intro? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I guess about, you're placing people at all different levels, but sure. uh, so I would for for base salaries in uh, major tech markets in New York, uh, I would say a hundred to one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year for base salary. Okay, so that's twenty five to thirty thousand dollars going to Recurse Center for for someone who's recruited. Correct. Um, that's kind of a lower bound. Our, our average placement fee is, 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 uh, is a bit higher than that. Hmm. Sweet. So <laughs> how many people do you place a year? I'm doing some back of the envelope math here in my head. Um, I guess we don't release that officially. I will say on the order of 100, 100 a year or so. Let's okay. Say. All right. That sounds sustainable. Um, yes. And I think that's... Um, that's important to us and is hopefully reflected in all of our work, which is our goal is to build uh, an institution that can last. And I think that's, um, that's a piece that I think a lot of groups, particularly in the alternative education and unschooling yes. world, uh, don't tackle and don't, uh, or, or miss, or don't, don't kind of consider thoughtfully enough. I was um, thinking exactly the, along the same lines. There's so much struggle, uh, 
with having sustainable financial models and also founder syndrome within little self-directed learning startups and alternative schools. Uh, but, but it's so different. It, you are placing people with some of the, the highest paying jobs in this country. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on you know, lessons that you've learned that could be applied into the alternative education sphere? So, I mean, I think my lessons are unfortunately probably pretty generic, which is that like your organizational incentives really matter and you need to think about uh, making sure that the incentives that you set up for your organization align well with your actual, you know, uh, the rest of your values and what you want to be doing. Um, and so this is a case where it works very well for us, right? Like, for instance, one of the things that makes companies want to hire from RC and pay us very large recruiting fees is the fact that they know the people who come to RC are um, from a considerably, you know, more diverse uh, set of backgrounds um, than uh, the tech industry at large. And so that's a place where the business value we are providing to companies aligns very well with our actual educational philosophy and personal values. Um, and because those things are well aligned, we can focus on making RC a more diverse and inclusive place, not at the expense of our success, but actually uh, in pursuit of greater success. Um, so I think thinking about how to make things well aligned, um, you know, I think one of the most common things I hear when talking to people about this is they always say, oh, well, what about, um, you know, making a, a recurse center for, uh, for cooking or for, you know, XYZ or whatever. Um, you know, I, I would love to have one for, you know, Mandarin or something. Uh, and I think the challenge there is figuring out the economics and the business model, because, you know, as you rightly noted, like RC works and is sustainable because programmers are extremely highly valued in the current market. Um, and I believe that that will continue and only grow over time. Uh, but if that were not true, uh, the rest of RC could not work. Um, because if we charged, say, tuition, um, our business would work um, dramatically less well, I think, across the board, because that would be creating a barrier, making RC less accessible, meaning the uh, number, strength, and diversity of people coming to RC would be diminished, meaning the experience of actually attending the retreat would get worse. And I think this is a place where, you know, again, our model is the opposite of the traditional, uh, you know, kind of classroom schooling model, where I think in a traditional classroom with the vessel filling model of education, um, I think they have a real contradiction and problem with the fact that like diversity is actually at odds with the success of that model. If you believe that, you know, everyone needs to learn the same things at the same time in the same way, um, well, it's much easier to do that if everyone is a clone of each other, right? If everyone's exactly the same and has the same interests and same prerequisites and skills and advances at the same rate, uh, to the extent that that's true, the, you know, it's an easier time running the traditional kind of classroom uh, vessel filling knowledge of uh, model of education. Um, whereas the opposite is true for RC, right? If, if everyone came to RC and had the exact same backgrounds and skills and interests, uh, it'd be not just a, a fundamentally dull place. It would, it, would, it would not be very valuable to anyone. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, but, but so that's a place where our business model is very well aligned um, and alternative business models like charging tuition or dues or something like that for participating would be, I think, out of alignment with the rest of uh, how we run the organization. Hmm. Um, 
but it also means you can't just kind of drop the business model into other things, right? You, you can't just say, okay, well, let's, uh, let's build an organization where it assumes if people come and spend three months learning Mandarin together, uh, a company will pay us, you know, 30 or $40,000 yeah. um, to yeah. hire that speaker. That's unfortunately not the economic reality. Um, uh, and so I think that you'd have to think through from a, a different set of assumptions, how to yeah. actually make that in a sustainable way. I, I'm imagining a self-directed learning center for teenagers that uses an income sharing agreement. I just don't mm. think that would work out for anyone. Um, so <laughs> I want to close by asking you uh, how your views and your, your beliefs on, on unschooling and self-directed learning, broadly speaking, have, have evolved over your life because you had this this very unschooled although not unschooled in the way that many people conceive of unschooling as a, as a more uh, perhaps isolated experience you were part of open connections it was it was a very community based experience um, but coming from that background and now that you are uh, you're a dad and you've been running this organization for 10 years uh, do you have do you look at unschooling and self-directed learning uh, differently or, or are there you know shades of nuance that have appeared over this time period for you? I, I think if anything, uh, my life has experienced have pushed me in the other direction. Um, you know, time around people who are coming into a self-directed environment for the first time or who haven't had the opportunities that I had growing up to actually discover what they're interested in or who did discover what they're interested in, but like only despite, you know, their, uh, mm -hmm. their formal education um, has only pushed me more towards believing that uh, trusting young people and giving them freedom is the right way to go. And on reflecting on my own experiences, like the, the only real critiques that I have for my parents are the uh, very limited examples of where they didn't follow their own philosophy, um, where they, uh, you know, I still joke with uh, my father about this of, um, you know, they made me do indoor soccer. I don't know how old I was, but it was probably close to 30 years at this point. Um, and I still resent them for that. Uh, they, they, you know, they forced <laughs> me to do almost nothing. It, it didn't benefit me. It, it was, I, I think, a traumatic experience, uh, ultimately. I, you know, and it, um, and I think, I think they were well-meaning, but I think that was one of the very limited examples of where they didn't actually uh, fully trust me and they didn't follow uh, through on their educational beliefs, which I, I should be clear they did to an extremely uh, uh, good extent. And, and, and I think the most important thing they did as, as parents for me was to unschool me and to, in 99% of cases, actually um, follow that thinking. Um, but that, that, to me, is what sticks out. And that's what I think about in terms of... Um, how to support uh, you know my son as he gets older, uh, and how to make sure that uh, I don't uh, impose my own desires and interests on him, and how to make sure that I am providing him with as many opportunities and resources uh, as I can, uh, while uh, forcing him to do as little as possible. Nick, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.